America is back. Diplomacy is back. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from lovely spring Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also here in the Low Countries. And with us today from Stockholm, I think, is Piotr Tepichkana. Piotr is a senior researcher in the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, in the Nuclear Disarmament, Arms Control, and Nonproliferation Program, where he works on nuclear nonproliferation, disarmament, and arms control, as well as the impact of new technologies on strategic stability. He has a new report out with Dr. Laura Salman on South Asia's nuclear challenges, which their team talked to people in India, Pakistan, China, Russia, and the United States to get their perspectives on how they saw nuclear deterrence and proliferation in South Asia. Really interesting stuff. So, Piotr, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You work on South Asia and you work on nuclear issues more broadly. How would you say nuclear issues in South Asia are different from nuclear issues uh, in the rest of the world or in Europe, you know, where we've been talking about them off and on here at War and Peace? To be honest, the bottom line is that if the countries have nuclear arsenals, they have the same issues because they have the same concerns and calculations about the external threat that can be managed through the fact that they have a nuclear response in their mind. So from this point of view, it's not a big difference. However, if to compare with the situation in Europe, it's quite a different thing. Because in Europe, it's about a Euro-Atlantic security uh, architecture with Russia on one hand and NATO alliance on the other. If we have an example of South Asia, disputable, for instance, uh, inside India, the people uh, actually they don't like uh, using the South Asia concept, especially if and when discussing uh, nuclear policies. Because for India, the key uh, threat, the nuclear threat, as it was forced and declared uh, many times in India, is China, the country living and existing beyond that region. So if to think about South Asia concept, it's more acceptable for Pakistan with its India-centric nuclear posture. However, now we have totally different thing because now we have a huge Indo-Pacific region in addition to this South Asian thing with traditional border disputes between India and Pakistan, between India and China. Now, the countries are having access to the Indo-Pacific region, including the United States, China, Southeast Asia, South Asia, India and Pakistan, and even countries beyond that part of the world, they are thinking about what they should have deployed in this region. Including some of them are thinking about nuclear capabilities like submarines being permanently deployed in the Pacific region. So you have these local conflicts that feed the initial proliferation, but you also have global dynamics that can feed back, that can affect these balances. Is that what we're seeing? Everything links with everything. It would be my response to this question. 
because you know many countries in the world can have territorial disputes it's not the big reason to possess nuclear arsenals the nuclear arsenals is more about having a response to a bigger threat a bigger threat uh, threatening the existence of that country or threat its integrity and uh, avoiding anything that can disintegrate that country so and for india it was exactly the reason why India decided to go nuclear. It was the fail in the war between India and China. And Indians planners, they calculated that if China keeps understanding that India is weaker and India doesn't have anything to use in response to uh, possible future threats from China, for China it will be easier to be more and more aggressive and to build also its own rules in that region. But as for now, and probably partially as a result of the new Indian decision to go nuclear, China doesn't have these stakes in South Asia. Still, it's an outsider country with close relations with Pakistan, with Bangladesh, with Sri Lanka, but without a dominating hand in the regional affairs. Can I ask a little bit more specifically, you're implying that India got an advantage from going uh, nuclear. Back in 98, when Pakistan also went nuclear, I was a reporter and I, I was going to Islamabad. And frankly, I couldn't see what it had really changed for, for Pakistan. And looking back 23 years later, I, I wonder what really did Pakistan gain? I mean, it doesn't seem to have paid any big international penalty. Would you say that Pakistan's move won it great things, that it sacrificed a lot to have this, or that it didn't change very much? I think that it wasn't a big difference because even before the 1998 nuclear test, there were assumptions that Pakistan could have its nuclear arsenal ready for being used. So, of course, untested, but nevertheless, even before that, there were reports, including the reports that are now open, uh, reports, I mean, from national intelligence services in different countries, including in the United States, assessing that Pakistan could have designed and built nuclear warheads and weapons even before its nuclear test in 1998. And by the way, when India decided to test its nuclear arsenal, it was mentioned by the Prime Minister Vajpayee that China, of course, it was the first reason. And the second reason was Pakistan with its hidden nuclear arsenals. Okay, then Pakistan decided to make it public with its own nuclear test. And I would say that my conversations with people in Pakistan demonstrated that mostly they think that it was the right decision. It was the right decision because it was a clear and sound signal to India that Pakistan wasn't not only to respond to the Indian nuclear threat, but also to conventional threat with its nuclear weapons. And this is an important thing because India declares non-first use policy when Pakistan repeated many times that its nuclear deterrence policy is flexible and can be used against conventional threats from Indian side as well. But has it had really much impact on Kashmir, which seems to have gone a bit more India's way? India's much more dominant in Kashmir now, and it seems to have continued, you know, the clashes along the border have remained roughly the same as they used to be. I mean, Pakistan won anything concrete, or is it just psychological? I think that it's not only about uh, psychological things. I think that uh, it's also about some kind of restraint that both sides exercise after the nuclear tests of 1998. Of course, you can mention the Kargil War of uh, 1990, 
9 happened just after the nuclear test, and then they got other armed conflict between them, but they all were something like low-profile exchanges of fires without going deeper to the war situation like they used to have in 60s and 70s with uses huge conventional forces with entering each other the territories with tanks and so on. Now it's not possible anymore, partially because Pakistan decided to go nuclear after the Indian decision. So if they didn't have nuclear weapons, they would have suspect that they would have fought more and more deadly wars over the course of the last 20-odd years. I think that there is the possibility of such bigger conflicts would be higher. So you too are not a uh, nuclear ban treaty fan. I'm a fan, but we need to understand both sides. And we need to understand why that or this country decided to invest huge amounts of money and resources to build and to keep its nuclear arsenal. But it doesn't make this arsenal human or fully uh, legitimate because for me, uh, the key thing is to compare this with uh, a drone war. Highly precise and a highly accurate conventional weapon can have mistakes and can hit wrong targets and peaceful targets. So we cannot tolerate that. It's not possible to tolerate when conventional war, any war, target peaceful people. But to compare with a nuclear weapon, any use of nuclear weapon will affect peaceful people, peaceful life, even if it's against, for instance, the military target. So from this point of view, I would say that it's extremely important that the nuclear ban highlighted a human dimension for the nuclear threat of the nuclear weapons use. So from this point of view, it means that this reminder, it should help military planners and nuclear people just to realize the high price for the possible failure of nuclear deterrence relations. Because actual nuclear use of these dangerous weapons will mean the failure of nuclear deterrence relations. Because nuclear deterrence relations succeeds when there is no reason to strike other side with your nuclear weapon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And we are talking to Piotr Tvichkana of CIPRI about South Asian nuclear weapons, new technologies, deterrence, and so forth and so on. So Piotr, I do want to bring this around. The balance in South Asia has been helpful, and we've talked about the dangers of having nuclear weapons in general. The United States and Russia have recently been talking about whether or not China should be part of their arms control discussions. And one of the questions I keep having when this comes up is, okay, people come to the table to talk about arms control because they want things from the other parties. What does China want from Russia and the United States that might convince it it's worth coming to the table and talking about arms control? I think that there is something that can be more realistic and just possible between the sides and something that can be less realistic. The first thing, and it's easy thing, it's possible, it's happening right now, it's about a doctrinal dialogue. It's already happened in the format of the P5 dialogue with nuclear terms of vocabulary agreed between the sides. It's a, it was the first step, and there are some captains that say it's not a big deal. For me, it's a big deal when the sides speak the same language. 
and they have the same understanding about the key terms and key ideas behind their nuclear policy. But these things should be continued. And unfortunately, due to the COVID-19, these uh, contacts are less active. But I hope that the sites, including other nuclear weapon sites like Great Britain and France, will join and will have some productive efforts in the nuclear doctrinal dialogue between them. Because this is about the nuclear transparency. It's about transparency of intentions, plans, and what is behind the public statements of each of these countries. So the UK has quite recently made an announcement that it's not such a big fan of transparency after all, that it wants the space to build up its nuclear arsenal past where it had said it wasn't going to build up before, and that it wants to be a little bit quieter about what it does and why it does it, because in their view, ambiguity is necessary for deterrence. So which is it in your view? I think it's a bit of a debate, right? Is ambiguity good because you want your adversary always a little off balance? Or is transparency good because you want to understand each other, you want to be using the same words, you want your signaling to get through, and also how credible can you be if they don't understand you? So which one is from your viewpoint? It's, it's a hard question, and it's not possible to resolve it, to be honest. There is a huge literature about uh, the ambiguity versus transparency. And I would say that if a country proceeds with ambiguity, with a purpose, and it is able to explain this purpose clearly, why it wants this ambiguity, it would be quite a stabilizing thing. If it's ambiguous just because of ambiguity, without any actual purpose, without any explanation of this purpose and of this ambiguity, it may be a more dangerous thing. You want transparent ambiguity? Uh, yes. So from this point of view, I would say that UK is not the worst example. Actually, what's worse, before its decision to build more nuclear warheads, it was one of the best examples with its uh, restraint policy, with its decision to keep less nuclear warheads, with its own project with Norway and the United States and Sweden about the transparency of disarmament efforts with non-nuclear weapon states. It was something like just a great thing because it's never happened, for instance, in Russia and the United States. Because Russia and the United States, they prefer to be transparent with each other, but not with non-nuclear weapon states. But UK decided to be more transparent. And I would say that uh, the current decision by the United Kingdom to build uh, more nuclear warheads doesn't cancel the previous achievements by the uh, United Kingdom. It just reflected the new situation after the Brexit and the new concerns related to Russia and related to China. And to be honest, I would agree with some authors from Russia who reacted with things that it's not a big deal for Russia and the, the change. It's not a pleasant thing and we shouldn't upload this decision, but it's not a big challenge, for instance, for Russia. It's not a big thing in terms of growing threat for other countries. You also have been writing a lot about the implications of technological change, emerging technologies and new technologies on nuclear balances around the world and on stability. 
Can you just tell me in a nutshell, if somebody asks you, you know, are the robots going to kill us or are the robots going to save us? What's the answer? Should we be afraid of the technological um, change or should we welcome it as an opportunity for, in fact, greater transparency, better communication, more certainty? Let my robots speak to your robots. Yeah, I think that both answers are correct. We should be concerned and we should explore positive impacts of introducing artificial intelligence. So I would start with the positive thing. The positive thing is that the capability of automatically collect and analyze data from multiple sources is a huge thing. And it helps a lot to understand things even without transparency with other sites. This is the first thing. The second thing is also computer algorithms can help strategic planners to design proportional response without being dependent on nuclear weapons. So it's about more effective use of the capabilities without thinking about nuclear weapons all the time. I mean, you've written about this gray area that's grown up between the old conventional uh, weapons and the absolutely catastrophic nuclear weapons. And it really seems like that gray area is pushing up against which used to be old nuclear hegemony, if you like. Are we now at a stage where the nuclear weapons are actually very unlikely to be used between established states? Instead, all sensible nations should focus on building drone squadrons and cyber attack units and all these other new non-nuclear things, which seem to be much more usable and actually dangerous than the clearly catastrophic nuclear option. But the point of the nuclear weapons is not to use them. That's why you have them. There are many aspects in this conversation. The first aspect is that the countries, some developers, they think about using the same platform for delivering conventional and non-conventional warfare. It's about cruise missiles, it's about undersea platforms, the notorious Poseidon platform that We hope it was designed for surveillance purposes, but there are concerns that it's about delivering nuclear warheads as well. And here there is no transparency. And it can be a good reason to have a conversation about confidence building measures between the sides, for instance, if we decide to deploy this platform just to announce for the other side that its system was deployed without a nuclear warhead and nuclear weapons on it. The second thing, we got one author in a publication who uh, mentioned that uh, using uh, multiple drones and as a swarm can produce, uh, in effect, uh, more dangerous than uh, the use of a nuclear warhead. Well, uh, personally, I would dispute with that because even after uh, using multiple conventional weapons, it's not about clearing the areas after radiological contamination. And, uh, well, it may be differently uh, managed, but nevertheless, the use of uh, nuclear weapon, it will affect peaceful lives and nature and people beyond the area of actual use of this uh, nuclear warhead and nuclear weapon or weapons. So from this point of view, I would say that if to compare with conventional weapons and drones, nuclear weapons, for me, uh, remain... Uh, more dangerous. But are they a better investment for a country that's uh, trying to get attention on the world stage? Is it the actual purpose and reason to have nuclear weapons to attract 
the attention from uh, other world countries. And is it to prevent a war so that you don't have to fight it, right? And if it keeps you from needing to use your drones and whatnot, then it's, and fewer people die, then perhaps it's a good investment. If it creates the risks that you will actually use your nuclear weapons, then it's a bad investment. But if, for instance, other side possesses advanced technologies and drones and uh, conventional cruise weapons, but your country doesn't have uh, similar budgets and advances, it has to rely on the nuclear arsenal because threatening other side with your own modest nuclear arsenal would be a good and proportional response to the growing conventional threats and insecurities from an advanced country. Assuming that the threat is one that really does endanger your survival as a state, right? Because otherwise, your threat to counter that with a nuclear weapon might not be credible. From this point of view, developments of drones and uh, these capabilities, they don't cancel uh, the role of nuclear weapons, at least for the seeable future, uh, unfortunately. And even more, these developments uh, create uh, bigger gray zones between conventional and nuclear weapons, especially when we have this debate about low-yield nuclear warheads again. And again, we have all these debates about tactical nuclear weapons and their role. High-precision weapons uh, will provide these tactical weapons and low-yield nuclear weapons with more accuracy and with more effectiveness in terms of possible combat situations. So from this point of view, unfortunately, high-precision uh, new technologies, computer guidance and onboard guidance and so on, it uh, uh, revived the whole debate about low-yield and tactical weapons, unfortunately. And also, it's also changed the thing about the difference between strategic and tactical weapons. It comes back to this very non-transparent ambiguity, and it also brings us back to the question of whether a nuclear weapon does exist simply to prevent its own use or whether it's possibly usable. We are terrifyingly out of time. I hate it when this happens. So much more to say. We'll have to... uh, We'll have to keep having this conversation one way or another. There's there's a lot we haven't gotten to. But Piotr, thank you so much for joining us. Huge pleasure to be with you today. And I will be always happy to continue this conversation. And perhaps one day an actual physical person. If you want to read more of Piotr's work, you should do that. It's on the CIPRI website. That, as you might expect, uh, www.cipri.org. You can also follow Piotr on Twitter. He is at P-T-O-P-Y-C-H. And if you go to CIPRI, you can read that paper we've been discussing, the one that he co-authored with Laura Solomon on South Asia's nuclear challenges. And uh, Olia wasn't joking when she said that we have a growing library of uh, nuclear-related work. So make sure you listen to our previous episode with Jessica Cox, who's Director of Nuclear Policy at NATO, for more on NATO's deterrence policy. And of course, our episode with experts Edward Geist and Ivan Kalugin on how countries, particularly the US and Russia, are preparing for nuclear Armageddon and what they'll do to to keep going. And for more of Crisis Group's general and ordinary work, do check out our website at www.crisisgroup.org. 
you can also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter and uh, tell us how you feel about learning about nuclear weapons, among the other things, on the War and Peace podcast. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya, O-L-Y-A, Olaker, O-L-I-K-E-R, all one run on word. And Crisis Group is also on Facebook and Instagram as at Crisis Group. And please do feel free to tweet at us about what you like or don't like in the podcast, whether you want more and more nuclear topics or less. And we will pay attention. We will listen. If, uh, if you're listening through iTunes or Spotify, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check it out for some of the others. So with a big thanks, uh, we'll say goodbye. Uh, thanks to uh, producer Bull Media and to our own coordinators, Rebecca Zeruhun, Asifa and Patricia Alonso, who make sure that Oli and I know what we're going to be doing every time we record a new episode. And thanks, of course, to Piotr and the biggest thanks to you, our listeners. Uh, we can't wait to talk to you again in another couple of weeks. For now, goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.